Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Neil, how are you doing this evening? I'm good. I'm good. You know, uh, keeping busy and uh, fighting fires, and yeah, it's a uh, it is it's a little later than I normally rec- record podcasts, but uh, that's good. It's good. This is normally my TV time, so yeah, absolutely. This is great. Well, uh, Neil, thanks for going back to office late, and you know, here and up there in Virginia, and uh, I really appreciate it. Um, do you mind giving us a, a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Sure. Yeah. So uh, Neil Chilson, I'm the senior research fellow at Stand Together and Stand Together Trust. These are two related organizations that are part of a, a big community of thousands of people who are trying to break the barriers that hold back people from reaching their full potential. Um, grew out of the philanthropy of Charles Koch, and uh, and but there's tons of other people involved now. So uh, my role is to um, you know focus on technology and innovation. Uh, to create an environment that allows innovation, a uh, policy environment uh, to help create that, and and to you know also work on having a, a society that embraces in- innovation rather than fears it. Um, both of those are are giant challenges, and it's, it feels like over the last couple of years those have actually gotten uh, much harder. <laughs> so uh, so I'm 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 pretty busy. Um, uh, I spent a lot of time working on antitrust competition policy. I spent a good amount of time working on privacy policy as well. Um, and also the the big picture permissionless innovation fights. Uh, fights is probably not the way I want to frame it, but um, the you know the cultural battles over whether innovation is good or if it's bad. Um, uh, that's an old fight, uh, but it's one that uh, I think it's an old set of battles between ideas, but I think it's one that um, is still very much alive today. So, uh, yeah. So lately I've been working a lot on, uh, what I call legibility that kind of crosses a bunch of these, uh, it talks a lot about, uh, uh, you know, focusing a lot on, uh, the platform, social media platforms in particular, uh, because so many of the issues that I deal with antitrust privacy, Content moderation are are driven by these guys, uh, and the policy fights are, are there. And I'm just such a huge fan of James C. Scott and seeing like a state, and so I just stole his idea uh, of legibility from there. And I've been trying to see what what we can learn about the online world uh, by applying some of his, his ideas there. That's great. That's great. You know, Scott's still alive. Have you talked to him? I haven't. You gotta make a road trip, man. <laughs> He's kind of hard to get a hold of. I've 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 cold emailed him a couple times, yeah. but uh, uh, if you've got an in, yeah, please help me out. <laughs> just gotta gotta show up. You just gotta show up. Walk in there and knock on the door. Um, Neil, can, can you talk about uh, you know legibility? It's a word. It's got a lot of traction in tech recently. You know, everyone likes to, to throw this word around. It is. I, it does, I, I think it describes something very important. Can you talk about what it is, um, and in the context, perhaps, of what what Scott means, and 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 then how it applies to kind of the internet platform monopolies we have today? Yeah. So, uh, what Scott means by legibility is this sort of uh, uh, view from the top of the world below, and so 
he's talking a lot. He's, you know, his book, Seen Like a State, is obviously talking about states and how they govern. And his thesis is that um, in, in order for governments to, uh, for the modern government to evolve, uh, they had to get a lot more information about uh, the world that they were governing. Um, you know, the the sort of uh, medieval uh, rulers, even though they had absolute power uh, in a sense, um, they they were only really focused basically on maintaining their borders and uh, and collecting taxes. And so that's about the amount of information that they needed. They needed the, to be able to collect information that explained that let them do those two things. But as uh, as states grew more ambitious, as they wanted to help shape society rather than just rule it, um, they had to learn a lot more about the the populace. And so Scott's book is full of these examples of uh, imposed legibility. He would uh, I would call it um, where the state pushed not it just didn't observe what was happening but they also pushed legibility down um uh my some of my favorite examples are uh, you know giving people last names like uh you know France did this they they forced everybody to pick a last name uh because at the time in a small town you didn't have to have a last name you were bob right like and right. and everybody knew you were bob and but you know, you have a, a, a you know a, an entire country full of people named Bob that gets very illegible to the government, and so they made everybody pick last names. Um, another uh, great example that he has is the sort of road between two um, cities in in Massachusetts, I think, which one of them was just called like the the Plymouth Road because it was a road that you took to Plymouth when you were in one town. And the other one was called like uh, I don't know the the Branson Road or something, and it was you know the road you would take to get to Branson, and so um, that worked fine for those people. And in fact, in many ways, it was very useful. Uh, you only you didn't have to think really hard. But if you're trying to draw a map of the road between those two, like how do you label the road, right? And so, so Scott's point uh, of legibility isn't that legibility is necessarily bad. It's actually sort of mandatory if you're going to try to do things from uh, you know a synoptic view. Uh, but his point is that it tends to um, oversimplify the situation. It tends to be removed from context. Legibility always has a purpose. So when they gave last names, it wasn't because they wanted people to have better names. It was because they wanted to be able to identify them. And so that was the role. Um, uh, and so that purpose often drowns out other purposes. Uh, the other classic example that that uh, that Scott talks about is uh, German forestry, um, uh, maybe Prussian forestry. I always it's like in this fuzzy time of history in uh, in in uh, Europe that I don't always keep straight. But uh, essentially, when when the king started seeing the forest as a resource for forestry. Um, uh, you know, they they started like to scientifically uh, observe what happens to the trees, and they just started by counting the trees, and then they were like, "Oh well, let's just make the e the trees easier to count by plant planting them all in straight rows, and only picking the same type of lumber." And what that meant is that you went from these very organic, messy forests to you know forests that were perfect for lumber, but maybe not for the many other uses that people had used them for. And they tended to be monocultures, and they actually all got sick. And so, like the the point of 
they had to bring in like all these funny things, like having the kids like take spiders into the woods and like and help like re- restore some of the ecosystem that was there. And uh, so Scott's point is, you know, we have to be very careful when we uh, impose legibility, even if it's necessary to our purposes. We should be humble about understanding that our purposes for understanding something might be very different than somebody else's. This is particularly true in complex systems where there's lots of different uses, there's lots of different people contributing to the the ecosystem. Um, And and we risk, um, when we impose legibility, uh, essentially eliminating a bunch of that complexity that can be used, uh, that, that can serve other people's purposes other than ours. And so, uh, the parallel there um, in, in a paper that I wrote called Seeing Platforms Like a State is that um, platforms also have this very synoptic view of their landscape. In many ways, because it's a digital world, they have much, much uh, clearer data about what's happening in the digital space that they govern. And that gives them a lot of power, a lot of power like the state has. Um in some of these more advanced, uh, you know, uh, states, and so uh, the question is, how should they treat that when they're dealing with, with especially with systems where people have many different uses? Social media is the classic one. People use social media for all sorts of different things, and the platforms um, have a lot of information about what people are doing. Uh, but what should they do um, when they're trying to govern those those systems and? Um, I try to draw like from Scott's, he has essentially four lessons. I, I sort of boil them down in a different way than he does, but he has sort of four lessons for how governments can pursue their goals while maybe, you know, minimizing the destruction or, um, uh, you know, being less utopian. The, the subtitle of his book is how utopian projects fail, um, or something like that. It's very close. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, so a lot of it is about sort of being humble in what you think you can do, pushing decision making down lower, avoiding over simplistic uh, legibility, and a couple others uh, that I that I throw in the paper. So, um, yeah, uh, I I don't know that's a perfect analogy, but uh, it, it's 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 hard to get Scott's um, vision of legibility out of your mind once you read that book. It's a very powerful uh, paradigm, and so I've maybe. Uh, Overapplied it, but um, it's been really fun and I think pretty useful to me. I want to unpack that a little bit and, and talk yeah. about the, these kind of you know tech platforms we have, and they do have you know a ton of legibility in, in, in the sense of they can see everything that goes on within the platform, right? Um, and in fact, you know, I, I think back to the last election cycle. You know, we're on Twitter. You know, perhaps you try to share a story from the New York Post about Hunter Biden, and then perhaps it won't go through the DM. You know, this is mm-hmm. uh, this, this is quite interesting. Uh, I, I, I'm curious, what does it look like, and, and what are the implications of these these platform monopolies? And I would argue, I think they truly are monopolies in that if you want to do microblogging, you go on Twitter, and if you want to, you know, interact with. Uh, uh, Boomers, shall we say, you go on Facebook. If you want to go to like, you know, the young people, Gen Z, you go on TikTok, and this is where everyone is. And because everyone's there, it's you can you could create a competitor, but you know, it not everyone's no, no one's going to just migrate to your Twitter clone. And yep. so, in, in some sense, like uh, 
it is the they have a lot of power at the end of the day because they have these powerful network effects that drive um, kind of this entrenched moat that's impossible yeah. to get across. Yeah. So um, you know the network effects issue and monopolization is a, a complex one. I mean. Network effects are very strange, and this is the question you asked me, but network effects are very strange because they are in both directions often, so that when when some small percentage of your friends are no longer on a platform or not actively using it, it becomes right. much less useful to you as well. So this is the the MySpace story, essentially. Uh, decayed very quickly, even though right. you know Time had these great covers of Will the, mono- will the MySpace monopoly ever be broken? So they're kind of a two-edged sword, um, uh, 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 the, the, the uh, network effects. Um, but uh, but it's, it's, it is pretty clear that because when they do have uh, a big audience that people want to speak to that big audience. And to me, that's more the reason, right? So like people are often like, oh, I'm going to start a, you know, like Parler is a good example, right? Like we'll start a conservative uh, friendly space. Well, it turns out one of the things that conservatives really like to do is, you know, owning the libs, and that's hard to do when there's no libs on the hard, platform, yeah. right? So, um, uh, so, <laughs> so people want to be heard in the in the place where everybody's being heard, and that does mean that the the content moderation decisions of the platforms makes a a big difference. And um, I think the way I think about this is that uh, there often trying to solve a bunch of different groups' problems. Twitter has a particularly bad problem in this space, um, just architecturally. But um, there's people are on these platforms for lots of different reasons. It's, it surprises me and it surprises many people in D.C., I think, that actually the overwhelming uh, percentage, uh, majority of people on Twitter don't spend any time engaging in politics. Like, they're not there for politics. Often they're there, you know, for like, Kim Kardashian or entertainment or, you know, like, uh, you know, connecting or following their favorite, um, you know, sports, uh, athletes and things like that. So, um, so people are on these platforms for lots of different reasons, but the platforms try to set a, a, a system up that basically can solve everybody's problems, even though, even though they don't work they're all there for very different reasons. This is the exact legibility problem. Um, so even though they know a lot of the data about what people are doing on the platform, there are a bunch of things that aren't legible. Like why? Like what purposes? What are the goals of people who are uh, engaging on these platforms? And and so you know, platforms like Twitter, where there's very little hierarchy, right? Like basically, we're all in the same public square on Twitter. Um, there aren't really private spaces that are moderated. Well, now they have a thing called literally spaces, I guess. So um, maybe they've added a layer there, but there aren't a lot of tools to exclude people and include people in a very uh, you know meticulous way. And so, um, so Twitter basically has a one size fits all content moderation policy that doesn't fit anybody, right? Like, right. And and so uh, you know other spaces like Reddit uh, or say Wikipedia. They have lots of hierarchy. They have lots of sort of individual spaces where people can collect and set their own rules um, with some baseline from the platform often. Um, but that allows a lot more of the sort of people to adapt to the social norms of the particular group that they're talking to. Um, 
and allows a lot more variety in a way that takes advantage of the the local knowledge of the groups uh, who are talking to each other. And so, um, you know, my my advice to Twitter would be to like try to create some of that um, hierarchy, some of that system. I think in particular, the thing that drives me crazy about Twitter is that their DM system is so useful and they have they just don't maximize that value at all. There's there's no other place where like it's actually almost for me in a lot of the stuff that I do. Um, in many cases, it's it's easier just to reach out to somebody on a Twitter DM. Right. Uh, but the tools that Twitter has for creating community in DMs is just non-existent Very essentially. Poor. And so um, I think there <laughs> that's a huge missed opportunity there. Might not help with the pressure, but it would let it would let them point to something and say, like, look, there's alternatives rather than changing our policy. There's other things that people can do. Um, to address some of the concerns that you might have about too much speech or too little speech being on this platform of some certain kind, and so uh, I, I, you know, I, I think the platform should uh, explore some of those um, more decentralized approaches to content moderation and community building. Makes sense. It makes sense. I, I, I'm curious. I want to talk about moderation a little bit right now. Moderation seems like a, a really, really big challenge. I, I mean, I think there are things that we can all agree we don't want. You know, there's like, uh, you know, bad stuff, uh, you know, violence. We don't want, you know, sex stuff. We don't, you know, There's all this stuff, you know, we don't want on this kind of public platform or we want to be able to opt into if we want to look at that. Yeah. You know, I, I think that makes sense. It starts to get much more difficult when we enter the political realm. It seems like it, it seems like and, and and much more of a very Leninist like who whom kind of a challenge uh, at the yep. end of the day. Like who gets banned? Um, you know, like can Trump have a Twitter account? Yes or no? You know, and I think it's very interesting the way they they did ban Trump. You know, it was kind of like right after he he'd lost and everything, and he's kind yep. of like a non-issue. So you can get him out. You please a lot of people, but really it's kind of over anyway. Um, <laughs> but you you know you've got all the engagement on the front end, so you get you yeah. both checked boxes checked. How should um, we think from a policy perspective about, you know, regulating these platform monopolies? You know, should we regulate them at all? How should we be thinking about that? Yeah, so uh, it's a difficult challenge. There's um, there's lots of action in Congress about like ways to pass bills that might affect some of this. And not just in Congress. uh, Now there's two... um, um, petitions to the Supreme Court for state-level laws that try to address um, some of the concerns that people have with content moderation. Ultimately, a lot of these run just like into the First Amendment with a buzzsaw, like uh, right. the, the the ability of government in our First Amendment uh, jurisprudence to dictate essentially the editorial control of a private uh, actor is very <laughs> limited. So I, I, I think that there's... Uh, I think a lot of the First Amendment challenges to to that approach are not great, or they're not going to allow those types of solutions to 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 work. But the more fundamental problem is again, when you're looking at one size fits all solutions. I've often said that uh, you know the the debate is essentially Republicans think that too much of their content is being taken down, and Democrats think not enough of the Republicans' right. content is being taken down, and so there's a sort of superficial consensus that something needs to be done about content moderation on the platforms. And this is the way it's covered in the media all the time. Like, oh, there's a consensus that something needs to happen. But the truth right. is like one side is trying to build a 
you know, a fire extinguisher and the other side's trying to build a flamethrower, like they're not going to agree on what right. the design of the, the the solution is. So to me, that just points out that there is no one solution here. Um, what the platform should do is they should be trying to create environments, uh, I think, ultimately, that uh, encourage people of with different viewpoints to engage with each other, but to do so in a productive way. And that's maybe that's not in their you know, best commercial interests in the short term. Um, I think it would make a product that's 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 better in the long term, and so maybe that maybe that they can think that way. Um, uh, but at the very least, I think having some humility about the ability to shape conversations and step back and say, "Look, um, I'm not going to agree with everything that's on this platform, uh, um, but you know, more speech is better than less speech, and we should be aiming in that direction." I think, uh, I think that's that's probably what the platform should be moving towards. Um, I don't think that. Even there, they can do a one-size-fits-all solution. Um, I think they should offer lots of options, and I think um, and and perhaps they should open it up um, to allow other people to offer options on how the content on their on their platforms is is at least viewed, if not uh, moderated. So, um, I don't have a lot of hope. I, 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 you know, I'm an emergent order guy, right? I, I uh, uh, so I. I don't have a lot of hope in complex systems for, you know, being able to design a single solution. Um, I think these things are organic and the platforms would be, um, they would benefit and their users would benefit if the platforms would think about creating an ecosystem of solutions rather than, you know, trying to design a single one. Gotcha. Gotcha. Some more, more case by case things and less uh, yeah. blanket kind of solutions. Um, what will uh, what challenges will Elon face? You know, if he actually ends up uh, getting Twitter in his back pocket here. Well, the first thing he's going to face is uh, you know sort of uh, winning over the employees of Twitter. I think. Um, I think there's a <laughs> oh, after this you know long engagement. I guess we'll call it that. Um, this long on and off again uh, engagement. They probably he probably has to win some trust uh, from the employees and and show them that he's interested in doing something that they're interested in doing. And if they're not, he's going to have uh, he's going to have a you know he's going to need to hire a bunch of new people. So um, I think that's the first that's the first challenge he faces. Uh, Twitter's business model is not has never been super successful. Their advertising is still, their advertising uh, targeting is still uh, just weak, super weak compared to many of the other social media platforms. And that means their ads just aren't as useful. I I see this every day, <laughs> uh, having spent a good amount of time on Twitter. I don't know if I've ever bought anything on Twitter uh, from a Twitter ad, but I've certainly bought lots from uh, Instagram uh, reels and, and stuff like that. So, um, uh, yeah, so so making it a, making it a successful business, uh, a business that is, I, sh I don't know that it's an unsuccessful business right now. It it, it certainly has uh, not much in the way of profits, but um, it has a outsized influence on uh, you know the media, especially and in uh, American culture, in a way that is way bigger than the size of the number of users it has. And so there's something there. 
there's something there with this company, right. but um, and nobody's been able to figure out exactly how to turn it into a, you know a, a rocket ship. And if anybody can, you know, I think Musk has a good shot at it. The thing that I think he brings the biggest opportunity is a chance to sort of reset the debate over social media content moderation. Um, and you, you've seen this in how um, how freaked out people get when they hear that he's he's going to buy it again. Right. Uh, that happens mostly on the left and how excited they get on the right. I think yeah. both sides are going to be like um, they're having outsized reactions. Um, but it does mean that Twitter would have a chance to go back and say, as an organization, they would have a chance to go back and relook at what they've been doing and say like, hey, maybe we should make some really different choices as far as the mechanisms we're doing, we're using to do content moderation. Maybe this is a chance to do what Mike Masnick calls protocols, not, um, you know, not platforms and, and try to bring some of that flavor of an ecosystem of uh, content moderation rather than a top-down or centralized or non-transparent approach to content moderation. So, yeah, so I, I think that would kind of be true if anybody was taking it private, right? Like uh, Musk, maybe it's even like not as great. Maybe if it was somebody like really boring who is taking Twitter private, uh, that would be great. Uh, Musk draws a lot of attention, so maybe maybe that's a downside, but... Um, uh, the the chance to take a company private to to reexamine all of that I think is 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 something that would you know I'm, I'm I hope it happens I hope it happens I think it'll be interesting to see what happens I don't know if it'd be successful but uh, you know I'm all I'm all for uh, shaking up um, you know uh, companies that are you know maybe a little uh, a little they're not reaching their full potential we'll just put it that way. Right. Yes, it'll be quite interesting. It'll be quite interesting. Uh, interesting challenge for Mr. Musk here. Um, I, I'm curious, Neil. I want to talk about uh, emergent order a little bit more, and and in context, um, I often think about this in context of markets. You know, markets can oftentimes be quite efficient. You know, Hayek. You know, talking mm -hmm. about the pencil and things like that. Um, yep. When uh, there's a tension with that or you know like scott has this notion like you know high modernism is really bad yeah. this idea that you can impose order on top of like complex systems and i do agree it's like oftentimes like very difficult and we should be wary about doing that but at the same time it does seem like there are there are, there are many cases where we do want to try to improve things uh and we can get a better equilibrium by intervening in complex systems. Yeah. How do you think about when uh, we should be confident that we can have a positive impact on uh, and, and get to a better equilibrium? And when can we not have such a positive impact? <laughs> Man, such the, that's the hardest question. I mean, this is the question I've been struggling with since I uh, became like a sort of, uh, since I read James Gleek's uh, Chaos when I was like 14 and became nice. like a emergent order uh, fanatic. Um, like how do you, there's a so there's an, a sort of nihilistic approach you could take to emergent order, right? Which is essentially like, look, I can't control things, right? Um, I'm just gonna do what I want and see, yeah. you know, see how it turns out. Like maybe it'll be good, maybe it won't. I should just sit back and sort of chill. Um, uh, but but the the truth is, emergent systems don't work unless people are trying to change things, uh, um, or at least they don't uh, they don't. They don't pro they don't progress. Um, you know, ant colonies, there's nobody in charge in an ant colony. 
But if all the ants stopped doing anything, it, the, you know, the colony would fall apart, of course. So, um, so we do have to act as individuals, we do have to act. And so, uh, I think, uh, when we're talking about government policy, I think that just calls for more humility than the average, um, uh, person thinks about. Like, it's interesting because, you know, I'm in tech policy and often what I see is that the people who are the worst at this are people who come into tech policy from an engineering background because they tend to have an engineering mental model in their head for society and that if they just design the right solution uh, and then hit the button, it will go. And of course, society is not a closed system. It's an open loop. And there's lots of feedback mechanisms and you're never going to be able to account for them. And so um, some of the tips that James has uh, or James C. Scott has uh, around this are um, governments have to act, right? In many cases, when there's something that's happening, there's political pressure to act. And so the question is, I don't think you can ever know whether or not your intervention is going to be net positive, but maybe try things that are incremental, um, that respect that the fact that your purposes for solving this problem are not the same as other people's and, and try to understand what those might be, you know, steel man, your, your, uh, your approach. And then, um, you know, he also recommends things that can be reversed, right? There are some things that can't be reversed or it can't be reversed easily, uh, if they go terribly wrong. And so those are the types of things that we should spend a lot of time thinking about before we intervene in that space. Um, uh, you know, to your point, uh, it's it's also easy for people, and I, I'm very guilty of this myself, to think of emergent order as always a positive. But James Buchanan actually has a really great description of uh, you know the the beach. It's called like James Buchanan's beach, and he talks about how it might be perfectly rational as an individual if you take if you go to the beach um, to not pick up all your litter. Um, but if everybody does that, you have an emergent result. It's just terrible, right? right? And and you know this, uh, you know these are externalities in, in another way to describe it. And that's an emergent process. Uh, that's an emergent phenomenon, and it's a bad one. Um, but when we approach something like like say James Buchanan's beach, there's lots of ways we might solve that, right? Like we might increase the fine on littering, which would you know generate um, uh, you know a, a greater incentive to not litter. Uh, but we might also do something like start a community effort to create maybe social pressure on people who litter. Um, and, and I think those, those have really different solutions, right? Like I, I would much rather live in the society that where people are doing the right thing um, because they are coming together as a community to look at a problem and where they might feel social pressure or like, where people felt ashamed because they littered than one in which people are like looking at the fine and being like, Oh, I better do this or I'm going to get in trouble or worse looking at trash on the ground and saying, well, I didn't do that. So it's somebody else's right. problem. Um, obviously somebody must've got, uh, uh, picked up for, uh, for it. So I, I think basically what I'm saying is there's lots of different ways that we as individuals can intervene. Government is only one of them. It is a powerful one. 
Um, and that, and, and uh, sometimes it's a very necessary one as a former federal employee. Um, I, I do think, I do believe that, but, uh, but we could be a lot more humble um, about taking on big projects. And, you know, I think to James's point, we should very much avoid the high modernism that says we're going to apply a sort of engineering view to the world and we're going to design, we're going to scrape away all of history and we're going to redesign everything to be perfect now. Um, I think that that's a level of hubris that has been um not only ineffective, but you know, in many of the cases that James points to, like quite deadly and terrible for for human beings. So, um, it, it often seems like, um, yeah, it, it can be quite hubristic if you think uh, everything in the world is like you could just wave your magic wand and automatically make things perfect, right? You know, yeah. it, oftentimes things are at equilibrium, and e- even if the uh, it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem quite rational. Uh, the, things are, exist for a reason. Um, I, the Chesterton, I this, Chesterton's yeah, French, exactly. French idea, yeah, right. Exactly, yeah. This idea that you know there might be this bull behind the fence. You know, that you come a fence in the woods, and there's a, uh, you know, you're like, should I go past this fence? I'm not quite sure. And, you know, you probably shouldn't because it's just unknown what, what's <laughs> what's behind it. Um, I, I'm curious. I, I really like the beach analogy. I'm a big Jim Buchanan fan. Um, maybe Tullock a little bit more, but I really like Jim Buchanan. Um, and it reminds me of this tension uh, I've seen where if you believe too strongly in something like the efficient market hypothesis, uh, then it becomes false. And so yeah. if, you, if everyone believes the efficient market hypothesis uh, and then no one is like correcting, you know, it, it, no one's correctly pricing things, then it, it doesn't quite work, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and so there's some tension there that that the individual actors in the system do have to be, you know, have this kind of rational behavior uh, yeah. at the end of the day um, to make things work well. In these systems. Yeah. And often it's a totally, I mean, you, you say rational and it, it's not the same behavior. Often it's like very different between the different individuals. And that's part of the power of an emergent system is not that everybody's a copy of each other. And when they all act, they, uh, they do something, uh, in synchronicity. Um, it's more the power of, uh, people making their own decisions, uh, in a framework that channels those decisions towards some productive order. Um, the example, I, the, the contrast I like to, to use is um, the sort of three variations of think, uh, think of an arena that's filling up for a football game. Um, as the people walk through the turnstiles, like that's pretty chaotic. Like you can't really predict where any one person who walks through the turnstile is going to go. Um, you can't, you don't really know what's going to happen when they're going to sit down, when they're going to stand, uh, et cetera. Um, that's a that's a good example of chaos. Then you have like you know designed order, and this would be like something at like a Harvard football game where like they all have a plaque and they stand up and it says like Yale sucks or something, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, but then you have something like like the wave, right? And the wave is an emergent phenomenon, right? Like you can see the pattern pretty clearly. It's actually really easy to see a pattern when it gets going. Um, but nobody's really controlling it. Everybody's sort of making their decision on when to stand up based on whether something interesting is happening in the game or if they're tired right. or if they have food in their lap or whatever. But the pattern uh, persists until it doesn't, right? And that's part of what's yep. so cool about being, well, 
it's cool to be in the wave, but it's even cooler if you were like the people who sort of started the wave because it very quickly right. gets out of your control. And so, um, uh, to me, that's the, that's the, um, we love to do things uh, we're social animals. We love to do things collectively. And, and I think as humans, we really, really, really love when we do something collectively that is bigger than the sum of the parts that we, uh, that we came up with. And, um, that's, you know, that's what happens in concerts and mobs and, right. And the wave at, at, at games. So that's great. That's great. Um, Neil, I'm, I'm curious. We talked a lot about emergent order and, um, you work in philanthropy and policy. Uh, you know, this is kind of a, is a we hit on a lot of things with long termism here. You know, effective altruism on the podcast. Um, how do you think about doing good when uh, doing good is fraught with so many challenges? <laughs> uh, well, um, my organization thinks about it very much uh, uh, as a bottom up phenomenon. So, uh, doing good. Um, is best done when you're serving, when you're freeing people up to solve the problems that they face. Uh, so much of philanthropy sees people in need as problems to be solved. And uh, I really think that that is uh, a, a really poor model. Um, people want to solve problems, right? We yeah. humans want to solve problems, and but often they face you know, pretty substantial barriers that internal and external that keep them from solving problems. And so, um, <clears throat> so I think of our, uh, I think of philanthropy as a, um, a way to help people break those barriers, um, that are holding them back. And, and that's hard to do at scale. Uh, and I think that's why the bottom-up approach in philanthropy is is often um, uh, it's it's I think it's under it's underappreciated. I think in part because it's easier to sell to donors that you're going to do some big project that's going to have this huge impact. Right. Um, not to say that those those don't uh, that can't be true. I, I think that can be true, uh, but. To really, in a sustainable way, solve people's problems or to solve uh, a, a social problem, I think you need to equip the people involved uh, and also really learn from them. I think they know a lot about the problems that they're facing. In many cases, uh, a lot more about the problems that they're facing than the people who are coming in from the outside and trying to help them out. And so a real respect for the individuals involved, a real respect for um, the need to empower them rather than, you know, just, you know, solve the problem that they, they are faced with. Uh, that's, that's our approach to philanthropy. Um, when it comes to the policy space, which is where I spend most of my time, um, it's, it's more of a, a push to reflect that vision of empowering people, recognizing their worth as humans, uh, reflecting that in policy um, rather than, uh, you know, the opposite, which is government um, designing a solution for people often uh, that may solve some people's problems, um, may make others worse, and can often be hard to iterate. Um, so that's that's our approach. I, I you know, I'm I'm humble enough to say that oh, I hope I'm humble enough to say that I I 
I don't guarantee that there aren't. I, I think there probably are some problems where, uh, you know, big government solutions are needed. Um, I don't focus on those issues a ton. Um, and so I, I, um, I think the, the main things that I focus on are things where the ecosystem, where most of the innovation, most of the creativity, um, and most of the problem solving, uh, is, is coming from individuals and, and individual, um, or smaller organizations and where they, they need to be freed up or, you know, provided with the structure to, um, to produce, uh, the way the a new metaphor I've been thinking about this for, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out exactly what to do with this. I'd be curious what you think is a sort of trellis, right? <clears throat> um, this gets back to the, the, the problem that we were talking about before. It's easy as an emergent order person to just sit there and be like tech policy, just let people be free and, right. and they'll, they'll, they'll do great things. And I think yeah. as a first approximation, that's pretty good. Um, but I also like the idea of a trellis, which is the the structures. Um, you know, you could call them rule of law. You could call them individual rights. You could call them. There, there's probably a bunch of other right. things too, but they're a trellis on which the emergent, the order, the growth can happen. Um, and I think that, um, I think the idea of helping to to build that trellis has been a useful sort of metaphor for me when I'm trying to uh, explain to myself. Um, what I hope to accomplish in a world that's so complex um, that that any one of my choices is is kind of hard to to prove that it's going to have a, a meaningful effect. I definitely I definitely think that's a good framework. I, I want to pose something to you. You've been a federal government employee. I, you know, I've asked this question to a couple of people, um, and, and even like people on the right have got, given me some interesting answers. Um, you know, you work at a, it's a it's a libertarian uh, philanthropy at some yeah. level. Uh, you know, it's like kind of center right libertarian, um, and I, I think it, it's interesting to me. You mentioned that you know the, 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 there are a few problems government can can effectively um, manage, and, and I do agree. I think this is actually like become more true over time. Uh, if I look back in, you know, the thirties, uh, you know, FDR would be like, Hey, you know, will, you're a young guy. Why don't you go electrify rural North Carolina? Here's a couple million bucks. Like go do it. Right. right. And, you know, federal government, incredibly effective, built the nuclear bomb, the Apollo program, you, you know, the list goes on and on like doing like really impressive stuff. They built the Pentagon in like 640 days. Like they came to, you know, the most recent renovation took like 15 years. Like, you know, they've gotten like much worse over time. Um, you know, how do you think about, uh, about that in the sense that like, um, you know, has the federal government gotten worse? I, I get these kind of milk toast answers where people are, they, they tell me like, you, you know, yeah, like, you know, no, it still works like just as well. Like, you know, the Chinese, like they can do all that stuff really fast, but you don't understand like, you know, like, like there's, um, we're really good at like, uh, you know, something else, you know, but, it, but all I see is like, we just seem to be pretty ineffective. Um, how do you think about this? Having been inside the federal government, working in policy and having a good lens on these things? Uh, yeah, the federal government has gotten worse um, at 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 achieving the goals that it sets out to do, and that's okay. in part because it shackled itself with a bunch of um, <clears throat> what Cass Sunstein calls sludge. Um, I'm mixing my metaphors terribly there, but um, uh, there are so many uh, restrictions and limits and constraints on government action. 
um, from hiring to firing to procurement um, that I, it's not, it's no surprise to me that, you know, it takes, it probably takes 15 days just to like repair a window at the Pentagon right. these days, you know, like uh, I, 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 it's, it is really crazy the amount of paperwork and bureaucracy that is focused on um, constraining government action in a way, not in a, like a libertarian way either. It's like <laughs> it'll be everything from like NEPA, you know, and permitting, right, right. which which does restrict what government does, um, to all of the uh, employment law that uh, to the privacy requirements, uh, um, there's, it's, it's crazy. And I'm not saying all of those things, uh, they're all super well-intentioned and some of right. them serve important purposes. Um, but they are the sorts of things that, um, when you're in an organization that doesn't have essentially the pressure from markets to have to get something done, um, right. those can grow much more, um, uh, right much more so in a way that slows down a lot of action. So I, I, I do think that the federal, gov federal government has gotten less effective at some of those big projects. Um, yeah. And I, you know, and it's, and it may just be a direct factor of, of largeness. Uh, it may be, a, the federal government is, is definitely larger than it was in FDR's day uh, by a lot. And so um, I, I don't know, I think probably even by GDP, um, maybe not in spending, but like uh, in in per capita uh, persons, I, I think it's it's quite a bit larger. So, um, size is size size is a feedback loop. Uh, you know, organizations right. have have challenges when they get when they get large enough, and um, I think that might be one of the one of the problems, especially when you don't have a market uh, disciplining mechanism. Uh, to to say like hey like you're not profitable anymore like you're gone, <laughs> right right right. Um, much harder to get rid of an agency or a uh, department or you know even an, an employee in the federal government than than in the market. Well, should we just do something? You know, it sounds to me like should we do something like you know I don't know move the FDA to St. Louis or something like that. Is that the, <laughs> you know we did this uh, in North Carolina. We we moved the yeah. DMV to my hometown and it like they had to essentially refound the DMV and it works great now. You know you can do it all online. You know it, it's really it's been quite impressive. Yeah, I think you know there's uh, changing changing systems uh, changing institutions is really hard. Uh, changing the culture of an in institution is really hard too, and so. Um, sometimes the best ways to do it are like these giant shocks, right? And so there's there's just no other way to do it. You can't incrementally, um, you can't incrementally make the DMV. Maybe you can. I, I don't want to say you can't, but it's much harder um, in many ways uh, to design um, or to urge a system into a, another a new, better equilibrium. Um, you know small piece at a time sometimes than it right. is to just say, Hey, we're changing this big thing. Let's see how it shakes out. Um, so it'd be quite difficult. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Um, well, Neil, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. Where can people find you? Where should we send them? Yeah. So, uh, I'm on, uh, Twitter at Neil underscore Chilson. Um, I have a Substack out of control, uh, dot .com. And my personal website is uh, neilchilson.com, and you can find uh, publications and every uh, everything else I've done there uh, as well. So, thanks so much for having me on, Will. It's it's been great to to chat, and I, I love talking about this stuff. Uh, and it's been great to talk to you. Absolutely, thanks so much, Neil. Appreciate it. Thanks. 
Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief, a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. Special thanks to Donovan Dorrance, our audio editor. You can check out Donovan's work and music at donovandorrance.com.